This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Moray for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. User experience designers often express a desire to play more of a strategic role in guiding business decisions. Yet, UX designers don't always seek to understand the advertising business model so they can maximize revenue. Instead, they often treat advertising as clutter, to be ignored at best and actively disliked at worst. Senior partner at Bond Art and Science, Karen McGrain, teaches ways to help advertising-supported sites be more successful, presenting case studies of several publishing sites she has worked on and the business decisions behind them. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Okay, um, just a couple housekeeping notes. I am Karen McGrain on Twitter and also here in real life. And if you don't get quite enough of this, I'm going to be hosting a lunchtime roundtable today. So please feel free to come to that and ask questions. So, okay, let's have true confessions time to get this kicked off here. How many of you, um, by virtue of having a TiVo or a DVR or just a really small bladder, somehow managed to avoid seeing TV commercials? Okay, well, where's your, yeah, okay, pretty much everybody. You know there's medication for that, right? Um, how many of you have an ad blocker? Not just a pop-up blocker, but some kind of ad blocker on your browser that lets you avoid seeing online advertising. Okay, I, I do too. Um, and how many of you find yourself thinking, you know, I just really hate advertising? Okay. So I'm aware that all of you think this. And so over the course of the presentation today, I want to do a few things. Um, I want to persuade you to think a little bit differently about online advertising. Uh, I want to persuade you to think a little bit differently about online advertising. I want to open up your mind, maybe make you explain why you should care more about it. Um, I want to tell you some of the basics that, that I've learned about how online advertising works. Um, there's some things that I've learned over the years that you might want to know. And then finally, I want to speculate a little bit about what the future of the revenue model online might be. For those of you who are, continue to be uncomfortable with advertising, there might be other business models that we can discuss. Um, this is a huge topic, and there's a lot of things that I am not going to be able to cover today. Um, I'm not going to be able to talk about designing creative for actual banner ads themselves or for microsites. So if you're an IA and you're working at an advertising agency and you're making microsites and banner ads for starbursts, um, I'm not actually going to talk about how to make that creative better. Um, I'm also not going to talk very much about search ads, like you know the ads that, you have, that appear next to Google search results. Um, choosing keywords for that is like an entirely different ball of wax, and I'm not going to talk about it here. I'm really focused on how you design pages that advertising is going to sit on, or how you design experiences or structures that advertising will live in. Um, and finally, I'm not going to get too much into the details of things like targeting and measurement and optimization. Um, that's a huge subject, and it's probably one that's really interesting for IAs, but uh, you know, it's one that I just can't begin to cover here today. Um, while I'm at it, I saw, I saw the delightful Heather Champ of Flickr um, when I was speaking at a Drupal conference this fall, and she had a slide like this, and I was like, oh my god, I have to steal that for my next presentation. So um, she said, you know, you know when you go to a place sometimes and they put a little warning sign on the door that's like, you know, a strobe light's going to go off, or 
a gun might be fired in this Chekhov play. Um, so I just want to warn you right now that it is incredibly likely that I am going to use bad words during this presentation, and I just feel so much better getting that off of my chest. And so if any of you feel like you want to get up and leave and maybe go see what Andrew Hinton's talking about in the next room, uh, I'm going to feel better knowing that it's because I offended you and not because I bored you. So, okay, with that said, uh, I do want to be a little bit serious here for a minute and say, uh, talk, to, talk to you about what my qualifications are. What, how did I come to be standing here in front of you today talking about advertising? Um, and I want to make it clear. I am not a shill for the advertising industry, okay? Um, I am a longtime advocate for information architecture. I spoke at the first one of these conferences. Um, I have hired dozens of IAs over the course of my life. Um, I'm, a really passionate about, I'm really passionate about IA. Um, and I'm incredibly unlikely to be standing up here saying, you know, hey, I think advertising is a really great thing. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, how I came, how I came to be here. And I, in giving you this sort of obligatory about me slide, I thought it would be kind of fun if maybe I mapped it, mapped some of my career highlights against the performance of the S&P 500. Um, so let's get this started here. Um, I was hired uh, as the first information architect, uh, or the first person with any sort of usability or IA background at Razorfish in 1997. Um, and at that time, uh, when the internet was very new and online advertising didn't really exist, um, that was when you get put to work designing banks. And you know, it wasn't like you got put to work designing you know, a little section of a bank. It was like they, they said to you, hey, we need a bank and we need it right now, so please go design it because it ha we don't have a bank on the internet. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, after that then, I did a couple of projects that I think really taught me a lot about information architecture, but also were kind of my first taste of how the world of IA intersects with the world of the advertising business model. So, I did one project for Encyclopedia Britannica, um, which was, I learned everything I know about taxonomy from that project because they have the largest taxonomy in the English language. Um, I learned a little bit about an advertising supported business model versus a subscription revenue business model. And I learned absolutely nothing about user generated content. Um, I also did another project for Disney on their ill-fated portal go.com. Um, and that was a really interesting project in that I learned a lot there about, they were really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of advertising supported um, content. Um, we did some experiments with ways to target search ads, your target ads against search results, which I think were really interesting. And while they failed for Go, I'm convinced that this model of, of search ads has legs and some companies probably gonna do really well with it. Um, so then, as you can see, uh, the market kind of tanks. And whenever the market tanks, um, advertising collapses. So advertising is one of the first things that goes whenever the market goes down. So at that point, that's when you retreat to the safety of working for financial services. So I did a number of projects with the 401k companies. I worked with the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, and right about where the market hits its absolute low point there in 2002 or 2003, that was when Razorfish got sold um, to a roll-up for $8 million. Um, so we all kind of huddled together for warmth uh, for a while and eventually got sold to, to a Quantive, um, which some of you may know has an ad serving technology called Atlas, and they had a services arm called Avenue A. And so we all kind of got merged together. And that was a really strange point in my life because it was like one day I woke up and I worked for an advertising agency. 
And you know, up until this point, uh, one of the things I was really lucky about was that the values of the company and my values around user experience were really well aligned. And all of a sudden, it was like we, they had a conference every year. And I remember talking to somebody that I worked with in the hallway. And he came up to me, and he was like, Karen, Karen, they're really serious about this whole advertising thing, aren't they? And I'm like, I know, it's crazy. So as a result, I started to feel like, you know, I care about user experience, and these people want to put ads all over the pages, and it just made me feel bad inside. So, but based on the strength of those relationships, uh, I had the opportunity to do a number of projects in the publishing industry. Um, I worked on, for many years with Condé Nast, which is uh, the world's largest magazine publisher. Um, I led a redesign of the New York Times, which launched in 2005. Um, and I did a little bit of work um, right before I left with CNN. Um, so I kind of got a good sense of, of mainstream media and what their challenges were in taking content that they could monetize offline and trying to move it online. Um, but in 2006 or so, uh, I left Razorfish for, for many, many reasons. But uh, in large part, it was because I really felt like my values and the values of the company were so divergent. And I was having a really hard time reconciling my ethos of user experience to a world in which everything was going to be monetized by ads. So I left to start a company called Bond Art and Science. And I probably wouldn't be here talking to you about this particular subject today if I had not done that. Um, and frankly, I probably would be a shill for the advertising industry if I was having that conversation and I still work for Razorfish. But over my years with Bond, I have worked with literally dozens of publishers. I have worked with publishers that are big, that are small, that are online only, that are focused on subscription revenue, that are focused on advertising revenue. Um, and over the time of working with all of these different publishers, I've really gained perspective on what it means to try to monetize a site through advertising. Um, in addition to that, uh, Bond also has its own publication called Cool Hunting. Um, many UX organizations have a blog. Um, we have a blog that we actually sell advertising on. And so uh, you know, I have the experience not just of being a designer, but now I have the experience of being a publisher and trying to figure out how do you deliver content and tools and services that users want, um, but also meet the needs of advertisers. So that's why I'm here today to talk about how you as IAs can design for the ads, design with the ads, or design around the ads. Um, but also, um, it's a little bit about how I learned to stop worrying and love the ads, with apologies to Dr. Strangelove. So let's, um, I want to say, everybody here today, um, you know, you're not here because you see yourself as just like drawing boxes. Um, you're an advocate for the user, and you want to make sure that user needs get taken into account. Um, but you're also, focused on understanding the business, you want to know what is going to drive revenue. And you understand that those some things sometimes have to be a trade-off. Um, so imagine that you heard people complaining um, about the placement of the buy now button on an e-commerce site. Um, you know, I have heard, um, I have heard people say all of these things um, when talking about advertising on the site. I have said them myself. Um, I have said them to myself and had my ass handed to me by publishers who, who are basically saying, you know, the advertisers are our customers. The advertisers are the people who make all of this possible. Um, when, I, when I told a friend of mine who works for Huge that I was going to come speak here, he was like, you're talking about advertising. Please, please tell your information architects or user experience designers or interaction designers or whatever the hell you people are calling yourselves these days, please tell them they can't take the ads off the page. Um, and so a lot of this for me is coming from a place of I have heard people say this stuff so much and I've kind of come around to saying let's 
poke at this a little bit and understand how we can make trade-offs between what makes the user experience good and what makes um, a good experience for advertisers or what makes advertisers want to pay for things. Um, now, I know how you think about this. One of the things that you think is that users hate ads, so therefore ads must be bad and we shouldn't have them. Um, you can find all kinds of commentary from people online about uh, you know, how much they hate advertising, how they wish it wasn't there. Um, I hope to kind of get across in this presentation that ads are a necessary evil and they're better than most potential alternatives and that our job is not to hate, is not to say there should be no ads because users don't like them, but rather to try to make appropriate trade-offs so that the ads are well integrated into the experience. Um, some of you probably cite well-known studies, this is Jacob Nielsen's banner blindness study, um, and suggest that this entire business model is a failure. Um, the emperor has no clothes, and no one ever actually looks at the advertising at all or sees it, so there's no point in really having it. Um, and to this I say, you know, if you're saying the emperor has no clothes, everybody already knows that he's naked. You're not really giving anybody any great insights here. Um, the people who work in this kind of online advertising and publishing field have way more data than you would ever believe about what people see, what people click on, how much recognition they get, what people's behavior is after they see an ad and then they go search for something and then they go buy something. This is not news to anybody and it doesn't mean actually, I mean, you might look at this and say, oh, this is a failure, but it, I think for most people in the advertising industry, this does not represent failure. This just represents status quo. Um, and finally, I think some of you probably still have this lingering hackerish ethos that says that everything on the internet should be free. Um, and to this I have to say, you know, the money from advertising is what pays our salaries. It was pays editors' salaries. It's what pays for servers and features and new technologies. And if you've ever said, God, I wish I had more money so that I could do more research or spend more time on this, um, the only way we're going to get that money on, into our field is through advertising. Um, so let's talk about how much money that is. Um, U.S. advertising spending, and this is just in the U.S., um, let's go through. So kicking off uh, the field is the everybody's, every IA's favorite category, the other category, at $17.9 billion. Um, this is kind of a hodgepodge of things, but the main thing that it includes is movie advertising, so like movie trailers and things that you see before movies. Um, outdoor comes in at $8.8 billion, radio at $15.7. Um, cable t magazines, I'm sorry, at $26.6 billion a year. Cable TV is 25.4 and broadcast is 35.5, so another way to look at that is that the television industry as a whole is a $70 billion business a year. Um, direct mail, or original spam, is 14.6 billion. Uh, directories, this is things like the yellow pages or the restaurant guides, is 17.2 billion. Newspapers, 39.7 billion dollars. Um, this was interesting to me because I didn't actually realize that newspapers were a bigger business than broadcast television, but they are. Um, and I wanna, I wanna make a, really, a point that was really interesting to me. You can't swing a cat right now without hearing, reading some story about how the newspaper industry is dying and we killed it. So if you look at the newspaper in industry revenue today at 39.7 billion, it is down from its peak. The peak year in which the newspaper industry made the most money that it ever made in the entire history of advertising, at which it made 41.1 billion. So they've lost, you know, a little more than a billion dollars, which is not nothing, but it hardly, to me, represents like, you know, the, the complete and total collapse of an industry. Um, and then finally, coming in um, at the top is the internet at 18.5 billion dollars. So we beat out other, woohoo. Um, you can see that the internet has grown. Um, certainly it's made huge upticks since like 2003, 2004. 
Um, but one thing I would like to point out is that it's only like maybe seven or eight percent of a $220 billion business. And for everybody who thinks about the internet as like stealing all this revenue away from traditional media, um, over the period of time that the internet's been growing, say over the last five years, the entire industry has grown more than the internet has grown. So it isn't that the internet has taken $20 billion away. The entire industry is bigger and the internet is just sitting on top of it. So now that is in contrast to the fact um, that user engagement, the internet has taken time away from traditional media. Um, people are spending less time watching TV, they're spending less time reading newspapers, and they're spending more time online. So let's put these two things together. This slide should really piss you off, okay? That's our money. Um, what, what this means is that even though people are spending more time online, they're not, that time isn't being monetized. Another way to look at it is that people's time spent watching TV is worth comparatively more than their time online. So when someone is sitting there watching TV, the advertisers are paying more for it, even though everyone acknowledges that their engagement is less, their interest is less, that all the, the, the young kids that advertisers want to reach are now on the internet. Um, so one way to talk about this is, is a quote from Time CEO Ann Moore who referred to it as print dollars, internet nickels. What that means is that traditional media has a long established business model, and so when they try to transition it online, what they used to make dollars for, they're now making nickels for. Um, one media pundit that I read estimated that um, online CPM, which is cost per thousand, which is how they measure things, is worth one-seventh to one-tenth of a print CPM. So what that means, just to put it in simple terms, your time when you're online is worth one-tenth of the time that it's worth when you're doing something, doing something in traditional media. Um, and, you know, okay, maybe you're thinking, well, who cares about traditional media? You know, that's old, old school. You know, maybe they have problems transferring their antiquated business model to the internet, but so what? Um, the, most in, the most popular and probably the most important revenue model for any Web 2.0 business is also advertising. Everybody's all excited about new platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and we all talk about them all the time, but they're not making any money. They do not have a business model. Um, and whatever business model they do eventually figure out, I guarantee you it will involve advertising. So it is time for us to stop hiding our heads in the sand. Um, advertising is not going to go away. Um, advertising is going to decline during this current period of economic uncertainty, but when it comes back, it's going to come back with a vengeance. And I guarantee you that advertising will be a major, if not the most important money, or most important way that any business makes money on the internet. And so for you all, as UX professionals, you have a responsibility to make things not suck. And so that's going to start with advertising. So here's some of the things that I think you should learn, that, I, that I've learned that I think you should know about advertising. Um, the first thing, and probably you know, one of the things that, that is kind of hard to wrap your head around, is just how many people are involved. Um, historically, advertisers and publishers have kind of gotten together in the service of trying to attract what the advertisers call consumers and what TV people call viewers and radio people call listeners and newspaper people call readers and what we call users. Um, and sitting in the middle of them is a, you know, a set of people called agencies. Um, and they are a vast network of middlemen that are all involved in not just creating, you know, making the creative for the ads, but more importantly, they're the people who are responsible for buying the space in the medium um, and the people who are responsible for selling it. Um, and these are incredibly high-touch businesses. 
Um, one of my clients from Condé Nast said, you know, for something that's supposed to be mediated by technology, online advertising sure requires a lot of people. Um, and so to kind of explain who these people are, um, I want to talk about, you know, who a media buyer is. Like if you have a, if you're a publisher, you have a website, someone's coming in to buy that ad space, who is this person? Um, this person is Brooke. Um, she is in her mid-twenties. She was probably in a sorority. She um, was hired because she is smart and personable. Um, she has a spreadsheet to fill in, okay? Brooke's job is literally all day long, she sits there and she fills out a spreadsheet and she wants numbers to plug into her spreadsheet. Her job is not to invent the future of the internet. Her job is not to think strategically about different revenue models online. Her job is to fill in those numbers in those spreadsheet. So this is an incredibly simplified model and please don't check my math, but uh, basically what she comes in and says she's got $100,000 and she wants to buy 500 clicks to an ad. And what she does is she looks through and says, are the, ad, uh, are the ad positions what I want? Is there an ad above the fold? How many ad positions are there? Does this site meet the demographics that I want? Is it attracting people in the right age range and the right you know, household income group? And then she does some pretty simple math to say, how much does it cost for me to get 1,000 people um, to view this ad? Um, if that's $20 or $50 or $5, she takes that into account. Um, she takes the traffic to that site and she divides it by 0.1%. <laughs> Um, everybody just assumes that the click-through rate is non-existent, but they measure that. Um, and then she figures out what the price is going to be and how many clicks she's going to get. Um, it's a very simple business that requires an enormous number of people to do it because it's all based on personal relationships. Um, one of the things that I think IA should be aware of is that media buyers are purchasing, um, they're purchasing the top level of the nav. Um, so, for example, one of the things, um, when we redesigned the New York Times, um, we had a whole conversation that was like, why do you need a health section? You know, most of the content that you publish in your health section is basically also sits in the science section. They sit right next to each other. What's the difference? You, you know, there's not really any need to have both. Um, and the truth is there's a very big need to have both, which is that advertisers want to buy that section. Um, so if Brooke is working with a pharma client, Brooke comes in and she says, I want to know that my ad is going to appear on the homepage of the health section. And so they're selling, um, they're selling those major categories as a way to say, hey, this is where my ad's going to sit. Um, similarly, the Huffington Post um, used to be formatted, structured very much like a blog. Um, when they redesigned, which they did recently, they redesigned um, with more global nav categories with the purpose of being able to sell those section fronts. Um, and it kind of doesn't even matter to, to people how, you know, it's not that those section fronts are the primary way that people navigate. The importance is that an advertiser comes in and they're very simple. They want to say, okay, you have a travel section and my ad for my travel company is going to go on the front page and on the article pages in that section. Um, similarly, um, we worked with the redesign, on a redesign of the Atlantic. Uh, they had previously been organized around, you know, category content types, basically. Um, and so the goal there was to give them, you know, a separate navigation system so that the main focus of the architecture would be on topics like politics or science and technology, which they can sell. Um, you can sell a category called science and technology. You can't sell a category called blog. Um, so I had this conversation with somebody um, where he was like, Karen, I just thought everything worked the way Google Ads work. I thought, you know, you just sold everything based on these tiny little micro keywords and you try to figure out what those keywords are. And the truth is that Google Ads are bottom up, but banner ads are top down. Google Ads, you can focus on trying to identify, you know, very, very small little keywords. 
But if you're trying to sell display advertising, banner advertising, it's really all about having giant, important words like business, travel, politics, science. Um, so I want to talk about the IAB. Anybody, did you know what the IAB is? Yeah, okay, it's the Interactive Advertising Bureau, um, and it is a cabal. So just to introduce you to this organization, let's, let's start for a moment by talking about the IXDA. Everybody knows the IXDA, right? Yeah, okay. So here's what the IXDA does. They intend to improve the human condition by advancing the discipline of interaction design. You know, that just, that just sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's, that's, a, that's a good thing. Okay, let's talk about the IAB. The IAB, they have six core objectives. Number one is fend off adverse reg, legislation and regulation. I love that verb, fend. It just, it just suggests, like, we don't even want to inspire our members to actually obey the law. We want to be there to, you know, avoid anybody making laws that might harm people. Um, the second thing they do is coalesce around market-making guidelines and creative standards. Now, what the hell does that mean? Um, so I'll translate that into language that I know you all will understand, which is the Vizio stencil. Um, so what that means is that you can only make ads of a certain size, okay? You cannot make ads that are any other sizes than these sizes, and frankly, they don't even want you to use all of these sizes. They really just want you to use one size, and that's the rectangle ad. You can, you know, you can have a rectangle ad, you can have a leaderboard maybe. Um, people don't really want to even sell the skyscraper anymore. Uh, the giant half-page ad, I think, is a much better experience for advertisers, but it's very hard to get sites to integrate it because it's kind of big. So really what that means is that the IAB has said, you can use three ad sizes and you have to use, you can only use those ad sizes and you cannot ever use anything else. Um, so what this means is that you have to design your grid around those ads, okay? So the first, if you are working on any project that involves advertising, the absolute first thing that you must do is start designing the grid and figure out where you're gonna put the ad. The rectangle ad has to go above the fold. If you wanna have a leaderboard, you can put it, you know, they really want it to be in the content of the page and not sitting above the header. Um, if you wanna have a left nav, you can put a skyscraper in there because it'll fit, otherwise, you know, you don't need the skyscraper. Um, somebody commented to me, like, God, why do all the web pages look the same, and can't you guys come up with something more creative to do, more creative ways to put the ads on? And I laughed, and I'm like, I guarantee you, I have a set of grid explorations that puts that rectangle ad every physical possible place that it can go on the page. And the reason that all websites look the same, or that you can point to, to websites in lots of different categories and say they all use the same layout, is because they all have to put that rectangle ad somewhere above the fold, and it's not gonna really make sense to people unless you put it you know, in the right-hand column. So you are really left um, doing some grid explorations, trying to get those ads above the fold. Um, you know, my other advice is if you wanna, my other advice on designing your grids here is that you don't need 17 ad positions on the page. Like, don't walk out of here and say, oh, you know, more ads. She said advertising is great, so I'm gonna put more ads on the page. Three or four positions is good. Um, when Brooke comes in and she says, okay, what if I wanna buy this entire page up for my advertiser? Um, if she's looking at six positions, then she's like, well, that means I have to have six different pieces of creative to buy up all those slots. So, you know, if you have three or four positions and they're the standard ads and she knows what to expect, she's like, great. Um, now, I know some of you are thinking, God, but Karen, the ads, they're so annoying. Can't we make them stop being so annoying? And, you know, my answer there is a little bit. Um, many, many things uh, for a media buyer coming in are gating factors. There has to be an ad above the fold. You have to allow rich media. 
Um, you can set some specifications, though, for how that might work. So if you look around online, you can find media kits for just about every major publisher. They want you to have this information. They, they're very eager for you to know how you would buy ad, ads on their website. So you can look around. I think Business Week does a great job of specifying things like, you know, how big can the rich media file size be? How many times can the animation loop around? Um, how does audio get called by the user? Um, these are all things that you can specify and they will ask you to specify. It doesn't mean that you can go in and say, oh, you can't have any audio at all or you can't have any rich media at all. That will mean that they won't buy ads on your site. But you can set a few requirements for what, what might make that acceptable. Um, this is what we do for cool hunting. It's, you know, we just, we just said, what do we think is going to be the maximum allowable irritation that will get advertisers to buy our ads but will still not totally piss off our users? If you're interested in this or any more information, you can just Google Media Kit and find you know, lots and lots of specifics about not just uh, how, what requirements they have, but how much they charge for ads. Keep in mind that whatever they put in their Media Kit about their rates is really like the hotel rack rate, and everything gets negotiated and dealt, and there's backroom deals, but you know. Um, you can ask to customize the text placement. So if you're running Google Ads or you know, any other ads from any other vendors on the site, um, all of these ad formats come in the exact same standard banner ad sizes. Um, you can customize the colors and customize the styling of it. I highly recommend that you do so. Um, do anything you can to try to make those ads feel like they're more integrated into the site. Um, if you have a good relation, you know, if you're from a bigger site and you actually have a Google ad sales rep or a Microsoft ad sales rep, you can go to them and ask to let them put the ads not just in these banner sizes, but let them you know, put the ads in whatever size and shape you want to put them on the site. Um, it's a better experience for users and it's a better experience for advertisers. Um, you should be thinking creatively about your ad placements, um, which means that you're going to need to make friends with your ad sales team. Um, there's some interesting examples of things that people are doing to try to bring the ads more integrated into the site. Um, Pitchfork just launched a redesign and Apple did this whole thing, you know, where they showed the iPhone and it actually interacted with the nav and it was like the nav was breaking into the wrapper. Um, you know, I saw a lot of commentary about how annoying it was, but I guarantee every Pitchfork user who had never heard of the iPhone now has seen what the iPhone looks like. Um, when we did the New York Times, uh, one of the things that they had was like an internal ad in the left corner and then an external ad in the right corner. Um, and, you know, one day somebody on our team was like, hey, what if we sold both of those positions to advertisers? And it was just like, the ad sales guy was just like, oh my god, this is the greatest idea. Um, and got, you know, was really excited about uh, being able to have this sort of dual position in the header. And that was what enabled us to negotiate. Being able to have this dual position in the header was what enabled us to negotiate not having the entire rectangle ad above the fold. Um, if we hadn't done that, we, we, the other designs we were working with had the rectangle add a lot higher, cutting into the content real estate above the top. Um, the Gawker family of blogs is doing some interesting things right now with skinning their entire site, like skinning the look and feel of the site for an advertiser. So, um, you know, a site like HP, an advertiser like HP will buy all of the positions and then, um, or entourage here, you can see how this is skinned. Um, Everything online is measured, okay? And that's, you know, whenever anybody talks about the benefit of online advertising, one of the first things out of their mouth is to say, well, it's all measurable, isn't that great? Um, there's a lot of measurement going on. Um, I don't know 
exactly how, I mean, there's so much data out there. Um, I can't even really get into this in much detail except to say that what I've learned is that data is cheap and insights expensive. Um, you can gather all of the data that you want about how ads are performing, but finding the really smart people who can go in there um, and do the hardcore work, business analytics work, to figure out what that actually means, those people cost a lot of money. Um, and finally, um, the last thing I want you to know about online advertising is that um, you should forget pretty much everything I've just said here because the banner is dead. Oh my God, they're dead. What are we gonna do without them? Um, so I wanna speculate a little bit about the future. I do not claim to know what the future of online advertising is, but I do know that there is no shortage of pundits out there um, just dying to tell you that the banner is dead. Um, the problem is that they've been saying that for like 10 years now. Um, and, you know, I would just say that I, I think it's hooey. Um, the, the advertising industry's reliance on banner ads is like our country's dependence on foreign oil. Everybody knows it's a bad idea, but actually fixing this problem is a lot more complicated. Um, you have to remember there's enormous amount of infrastructure built up around these things. Um, display advertising in general, whether that's in print or outdoor or magazines or whatever, is the cornerstone of the advertising industry. Um, and frankly, what I would say in response to this is that rather than expecting banners to go away, uh, you should, when advertising comes back in the next cycle, you should expect bigger, crazier ads. Um, what that means is though, we're all gonna be pushing more money online, you know, and the more money that gets spent online, the more advertisers that are saying, okay, we're gonna invest in bigger campaigns online. It's gonna mean better creative for the ads, so there's gonna be fewer punch the monkeys and more, you know, well-designed ads like you see in print. And hopefully many of these sites will stay in business because they're gonna be making money off of advertising. Um, I want to talk about sponsorships as a concept um, for a way to make money. Um, in the olden days, media had standards for what was advertising and what was content, and they, they get very huffy if you try to bridge those two. Um, that's different on the web. People don't have those same standards. Um, so Razorfish in their, in their commentary about their digital outlook says, you know, package everything as a sponsorship because advertisers love to convey the idea that they're bringing your content from their brand. Um, I would say my experience of this when working with cool hunting is that sponsorships continue to just be like the icing on the cake, the, the cherry on top. Um, Brooke comes in and she's got a spreadsheet to fill out and she wants to know what your banner placements are. And then on top of it, what you do is you throw in a sponsorship and you're like, and we'll also let you sponsor our gift guide. And she's like, oh, well that's a nice little like extra bonus, you know, extra credit check in my, in my spreadsheet. It's not what she's buying. It's what you're giving her so that she will buy the banner ads. Um, and that, I think, is also, also proven by the data here. Um, you can see this is how the different formats of online advertising have changed over the last few years. Sponsorships is the one that's gone down the most. It's only like 2% of the media share. Um, people are still buying display banners. They're still buying rich media and video. Um, sponsorships are getting tossed in for free. Um, and I think, you know, I would be remiss in not addressing the subject of, um, you know, what if people just paid for it? Like, can't we just get people to pony over some cash and get them to, you know, buy the content that we provide? Um, and I think this is something you're gonna see a lot of interest in and talk about over the next few years because the advertising industry is gonna be in a decline. Um, Chris Anderson is gonna tell us that the future of business is free and that um, things like giving content away for free to get advertising or you know, giving something for free and then getting people to pay for it later is the future. 
Um, the Economist just published an article yesterday basically saying, no, 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 it's over again. Um, you know, the idea that, that for content is free online is going the way of the dodo. They said this in 2001, and, and I think you're going to see the same thing again. Publishers are going to experiment with it, um, and you know, I think there's all kinds of things that might happen. Um, my experience, um, just anecdotally in working with this, I was working with the Times um, when they did an experimental program called Times Select, which was um, a way that they were going to charge people to look at some of their content online. Um, they did away with it after you know, not all that very long. Um, I don't have any of the data about how that performs. I don't think they've shared that at all. But one of the anecdotal things that they did share was that um, they, they gave Time, so they gave online subscription access free to anybody who was a home delivery subscriber. And they thought people who subscribed at home would be delighted. They were like, you know, that's great. It's something for free. And in fact, people who were home delivery subscribers hated it even more. They were like surprisingly negative about it. And the rationale that they got was that home delivery subscribers said, we want your content to be read by other people. The reason that we support you is because we want other people to read your editorial. And so for a lot of brands that are providing content and not you know, functionality, um, the idea that their, their ideas are hidden behind a paywall and not accessible to the blogosphere and not accessible for people to share and link and discuss, um, the, the upside they get from the paywall might be offset by the fact that their brand doesn't get the exposure that it needs. Um, you know, I've heard people say to me, basically, Karen, can't we come up with something better than this? And you know, I, what I would say, quite honestly, is that the internet is the biggest source, the biggest petri dish, the biggest source of exploration for different revenue models that we've ever seen. Believe me, if there is a way to charge for something or monetize something or experiment with different ways of getting people to pay for things, whether that's by eyeballs or whether that's by actual cash money, the internet has experimented with it. Um, I think the next few years will be very interesting in that um, you'll see people trying and experimenting with a lot more. Um, but having done all of this for a while, I am left saying that advertising is the worst revenue model for the internet, except for all the others. And with apologies to Winston Churchill and the concept of democracy. Um, so I want to wrap this up with a couple more thoughts. Um, you know, I think that I, I went out and interviewed a number of my former clients uh, in preparation for this. And one of the guys that I talked to is uh, the publisher, the head of Atlantic Media. He was formerly the publisher of The Week. Um, and I asked him at the end of the interview, like, do you have any parting words for the user experience community, anything you really want people to know? And he was like, yes. Um, he said, you know, he wa everybody wants to think that user experience is like this paramount good, like it's, you know, it's the inviolable truth. Um, he said, you know, you think that if you look at the ads on the page and you think that provides a bad experience, and so you want to take them off the page to provide a better experience. And he said, if you think that taking the ads off the page and making the page nicer and cleaner and easier to read and less cluttered and less distracting, and that user experience in and of itself is going to get more people to come to the website and thus going to drive enough revenue to you know, make up for the fact that you don't have ads there, you're kidding yourself. User experience is not going to drive that much revenue. Um, if you want content sites, publishers to be successful, you have to give the advertisers what they want. Um, 
And so just to conclude this, I, I really want everybody to think about, you know, our future is an industry, our future is professionals. Um, I think if there's a group of people out there who can find really smart ways to integrate the advertising, to provide value for advertisers, still deliver a quality experience, it's, you know, it's you guys. Um, but please, you know, think about it in terms of let's get advertisers to spend more money on the internet. Give them what they want. So, um, I just want to say thanks to um, the many people who helped me out as I was preparing for this presentation. Um, and I forgot to take the builds off of those logos. Um, <laughs> and that's it. Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.